Guys, let's go to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to continue where we left off last week, which would be about Mark, chapter 10, verse 32. You may have noticed as we've been working our way through the book of Mark, this has been our sermon series that we've been doing for a little while. Uh, occasionally, we'll skip forward just a little bit, not because I'm like, eh, we don't need to like, we don't need to read that bit um, at all. It's more of just that. Uh, we're actually wanting to get to a certain place by the end of the summer, um, just to be very, very plain. There's like a practical reason um, for all of this. Um, because in the fall, I'm still praying about this. Um, in the fall, I think we're going to begin to work through the book of Revelation. Um, and it's something that I've been putting it off. Hmm, yeah, hmm, mm. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> no big deal. So, yeah, you can be praying. But I want to get there by uh, September. So we'll, we'll finish Mark around mid-August or so. And I think, we'll, I think we're going to deep dive into Revelation around September. So I'm actually already working on it now, whether it's a fall thing or maybe in the spring. Um, we'll see. But anyway, so we're, we're skipping little bits in Mark just to kind of... Stay on a bit of a schedule. So, if you're wondering, hey, what happened to those 10 verses in Mark 10? Don't worry about it. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 is where we're going. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, that is the other ten disciples, heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave or bondservant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the third and final time in the book of Mark that Jesus predicts his betrayal, torture, death, and resurrection. And he says it in most explicit terms. In fact, this time, the third and final time, he adds even more detail. He's been talking about it, and he couldn't be speaking any more plainly. James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, brothers, (laughs) the way they respond, it's almost comical. In fact, even a few of you are sort of like chuckling because you've heard the story before. I mean, what are they thinking? Um, (laughs) He predicts his crucifixion. Of course, at this point, he's not explicitly said it's the cross, but he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. You know why we're going to Jerusalem? We're going up to Jerusalem so that I can be handed over to the Gentiles to be tortured and killed and then I will come back from the dead. And if you, if you try to put yourself there, you, you can't help but just wonder, what on earth are the, are the disciples thinking? I mean, at this point, it, it would seem as if Mark is like begging us to imagine. What on earth is Jesus on about? Like he keeps talking about, like, is, is, he, is, he, is he afraid? Is this metaphorical? And so it's, it's as if James and John, they, like, they essentially don't even pay any attention to what he's talking about. I mean, their response is like as if they weren't even listening. Mm-hmm. Okay, so anyway, I mean, it's like one of these awkward moments where someone says something really mel- melodramatic, and you're like, anyway, awkward. So Jesus, but seriously, um, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's bold. We want you to do whatever we ask you. Um, Matthew 20 actually retells this same little moment. And uh, Mark is very gracious. The gospel writer of Matthew says that it was actually their mom that approached Jesus to ask this question for them. That's super embarrassing. (laughs) I mean, this is already embarrassing. These guys are like, come on, guys. Seriously? Seriously. And they ask him, or rather they request of him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus goes along with it. He says, all right, what do you want? And of course, as we've just read, they said, we want... We want to sit on your right and on your left. When you come into your glory, when you inaugurate this kingdom that we're like getting really excited about, because these guys are all in. I mean, they're, they're, they're feeling the Jesus vibe, and they're, they're like, look, we, we just want in on the action. We want a piece of the glory. We're not, we're not going to try to like dethrone you. We don't want to sit like on the throne, but we would like the two positions of highest honor. And... Jesus, of course, is like, you, you, have, you have no idea what you're even asking. You don't even know what you're, you're talking about. 
It's a bold request. Let me ask you, just before we go too much further, if your mom were to ask Jesus for you, I want you to do whatever my sons want you to do. And he said, all right, what do you want me to do? What would you say to him in that moment? Sorry about the what? Yeah, sorry. Excuse my mother. But I'm really glad she asked because you seem to be going for this. What would you ask? I mean, you've seen the miracles. He's at this point, he's cast out demons. He's healed sick people. He's even raised someone from the dead. And you're convinced this is the guy. This is the mightier one. This is the king we've been waiting for. He's our savior. He's going to make everything right. We believe in Jesus. It's almost as if God is like with us. And he says, all right, what do you want me to do for you? What would you ask him? Don't leave. This whole like, we're going to Jerusalem to die thing. Can you just give it a rest? Seriously? That's, that's That's a terrible plan. That's what I would have been thinking. Jesus, look, no one's questioning the fact that you've got the goods. I mean, you, you're the man, Jesus, but your strategy for ministry, kind of lame. This whole going to Jerusalem thing to die, like that's a terrible idea. Tell you what, why don't you let me sit on your right, my little brother John can sit on your left, and we'll, we'll do this right. I don't know. What would you ask him though? That's a serious question. What would you ask Jesus to do. Anyone? Make me like you. I said, yeah, that'd be a good request. They wanted in on the action. They wanted, I reckon they wanted their lives to count. You gotta give them some credit. As like embarrassing as the whole moment is, at least they were motivated. I mean, they really believed in Jesus. They believed that this was happening. The kingdom that they had been dreaming of, the kingdom that their parents had told them about, that their scriptures had foretold, they believed that he was the one and they wanted in on the action. They were highly motivated. They, they were dreaming. They were sold out. You got to at least give them that. You know, uh, we're told in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus is sort of naming the 12 apostles. And we're told what each, each one is called. And it says that James and John, he nicknamed the sons of thunder. Tells you something about James and John. The, son, the sons of thunder. Probably a bit loud, probably a bit boisterous, highly motivated. I mean, they, they really were just wanting to like, they were all in. That, that's how I see it. They were all in. Lord, <laughs> they were the ones, uh, this is actually Luke chapter nine. Uh, shortly before this particular moment, they were, they, were, they were on their way to Jerusalem and it said they were getting ready to pass through a Samaritan town. 
Now, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along at all. And when they found out that Jesus and his disciples were actually on their way to Jerusalem, it said that uh, they, they turned them away. They were looking for accommodation. They said, no, forget it. Now go, go stay someplace else. And it said James and John went to Jesus and they said, so do you want us to call down fire from heaven or what? This is Luke chapter nine. Do you want us to call, th- these are the sons of thunder. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Because we can do that. I mean, the audacity. That's bold. Do you think they believed it? I think they did. They were, oh, they were so in. I, this, I love this about James and John. Highly motivated. Here's the irony. Jesus had every intention of serving his disciples. In fact, he said, I've come not to be served, but to serve. He also had every intention of allowing his disciples to be seated with him in his kingdom. Ephesians chapter two, verse six. This, is, this may be familiar to some of you. It says, by grace we have been saved and raised up with Jesus and seated with him in heavenly places. James and John would in fact go on to get in on the action. In fact, we know from church history that they were, James went on to be like the lead of the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. John uh, wrote the book of Revelation, no big deal, tripping out on some island called Patmos, just revelations, visions. So these guys, they, they got in on the action they had no idea what they were actually asking for. Here's the problem. These two brothers, they thought they were ready, number one. Like they were eager beavers. They thought they were ready to get in on the action. Number two, their motives were questionable at best. I would say this was just as much about them as their personal sense of importance as it was about you know, seeing Israel redeemed or their people rescued. This, this, was, this was an ego thing for sure. And number three, their expectations were way out of alignment. They were envisioning might, power, status. They didn't realize that Jesus wasn't they didn't realize that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to inaugurate, to inaugurate his kingdom by laying down his life as a ransom for many. Now, can you relate? Where are you at? Some of you, I know for sure, you're, you're like James and John. You're the kind of person who you're like, dude, I am so down with Jesus. I'm all in, I'm following him. If anyone says anything about him, I will be the first to call down fire all the time in prayer. You're eager. You want your life to count. I want my life to count. I don't want to just sit in a chair. I don't want to just stand back. Heck, I I want the chance to actually make a difference. I remember when I became a Christian, I remember it so vividly because I had grown up in the church very grateful for that. Spent, I don't know, the first 
14, 15 years of my life sitting in a pew in a Baptist church. And by the time I was 15, 16, I was absolutely 100% over it. Boring. That, that was my attitude. Bad attitude. And so I moved on. And then when I was 24 years old, I remember sitting in a little room in a crowd much smaller than this, listening to a guy get up on stage and preach the gospel. And he began to tell me that God had a plan for my life, but that because I was a sinner, I was going to screw it all up. But the good news was that Jesus came to save me. It was like literally about as simple as that. And I remember the Holy Spirit just like got a hold of my heart in a moment. And I'm like, I want that. And you're right. How, how, do, how do I do this? How do I sign up? How can I, how can I get what Jesus has done for me? And I prayed a prayer. I surrendered my life, as we say. And I can remember thinking to myself, what I do not want is to merely get back in touch with my religious roots. Like, I have no interest in that. But I do want my life to radically count for Jesus. Like, I want to follow Jesus for real. I don't want to just think about religion. I don't want to just hypothesize about spirituality. I don't want to just sit in a pew and feel a little bit better about myself because now I've mixed in a bit of morality or religion into my life to balance out my self-absorption. No, I want in. I want to call down fire. I want to see the world changed. I want, I want my life to count. That was my, I wanted it so bad. And that's why I decided like, Jesus, if you died so that I can experience that life, the life that you created me for, I want in. That was these guys. Here's the problem though. Like James and John, I would argue most of us start out with fairly good um, intentions, a bit of passion, motivation, but somewhere along the way, we realize that we have made this just as much about ourselves as anything else. They weren't asking Jesus, Lord, how can we serve you? How, how can we um, get in line with your agenda? As crazy as your agenda sounds. Now they said, Lord, we want you to do for us what we want you to do. We want you to sign off on our plan. Where are you at? Last week we talked about uh, marriage and, uh, and divorce and all of that stuff. It got me thinking about uh, when I got married. I was in my 30s by the time I met my lovely wife. Way, way older than I had anticipated. Some of you are like, I'm, I'm there. I'm feeling you. In my late 20s, it's hard. And uh, I remember I was 32 when I met Shirley. And uh, I thought, God, I am ready. I'm so ready. And I knew exactly what, what I wanted it to be. Okay, I had particular sort of expectations in mind. And, uh, and it was mostly about me. 
if it, particularly as I, as I think back, I felt lonely. I, I, I wanted a mate. Of course, I, I quite uh, masterfully spiritualized the whole situation. You know, God, I need, please give me a mate so that I can glorify you and advance your kingdom, you know, this sort of terminology. And, uh, but really, really, I, I was just, I, I was lonely. I had needs, legitimate needs, but it was mostly about me. And then I met my lovely wife, and God began to, to systematically and quite boldly mess with me, my life, my outlook, everything that I thought about myself and my lovely wife and what marriage was meant to be. And I think that's something a bit like the relationship we experience with Jesus. Initially, we come to him mostly with like, I have needs. I want my life to count. I don't want to go to hell. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I need you to do these things, God, please. Please, sir. And slowly but surely, or perhaps quickly and abruptly, God begins to help us realize, you know, this actually isn't about you. This isn't about you. And it's not anything like what you think. Let me explain. And this is what he does. Jesus calls his disciples together, and he explains He essentially says, my kingdom, it's not like the current kingdom we're living in. The values, the ethics, the the way things work. My kingdom's not like Rome, where the leaders lord over, where those in charge look down at those who are not. This is not about taking power from them so that we can get it for ourselves. This is a completely different kind of economy. My kingdom's completely unlike Rome. And he says, what you think this is about isn't even close. This is about pouring out your life for the benefit of others. Which is exactly why I'm so dead set on getting to Jerusalem. I'm on my way there to pay your ransom. To drink the cup and be baptized for you. That's, that's the, the ransom uh, metaphor, if you will. Someone pays a ransom, they're paying a price for you. Now you might say, well, who exactly was he ransoming the world from? It's a metaphor. But the point is, Jesus was going to suffer and die for you. This is what theologians call uh, substitution. It implies, oh goodness, it implies so many things about who we are, what we really need, who Jesus is, what his kingdom's actually like, what greatness feels like the intensity of his love, the dire state of the human situation. He came to drink the cup and be baptized for you. Let's talk about the cup and the baptism. What is the cup 
and the baptism that he's referring to. I've got a few verses I want to put up here. Now, in the Old Testament, the cup, this is a major, major symbol. There's a couple instances where it refers to uh, like the cup of God's joy. There's actually positive connotations. Uh, For the vast majority of the time, it's not a positive thing at all. And certainly in the context in which Jesus is using it here, this is not a happy picture. Psalm 5.5 says, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence, in God's presence. You hate all evildoers. That's so extreme. Psalm 11, verses five and six. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. You see where James and John got this whole idea about calling down fire. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself and stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The cup that Jesus is referring to, it is the cup of God's wrath. It's what God does when he's, thank you, oh, is it, okay. Is that better? It's a crackling? Did notice. Thank you. So this is the cup. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the cup? It's it's rather shocking, isn't it? It it doesn't, it's it's not like a super popular teaching, but it's all over the scriptures. Jesus said, Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink as a ransom for many? That I'm going to drink for you. They had no idea what they were asking. The cup of God's wrath was about to be poured out on the Son of Man. I remember sitting in a, uh, one of my seminary courses in London, and uh, Jane Williams, she's the, uh, I don't know if you guys follow any of the, the Anglican archbishops, um, but the wife of Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Jane Williams, was lecturing that day. An elderly woman, the sweetest, most proper British woman you will have ever met. And we were talking about the cross. And I kept wondering to myself, when are we going to get to the bit about Jesus suffering the wrath of God? What about, what about that? What about in the Old Testament where God, he seems to look on human evil and wickedness and responds with like violent anger? Like, that's all over the Old Testament. And I asked her, I, I felt really bold, and I said, why, why does it seem like so many people, I don't know if it's a Western thing, if it's a, a Protestant thing, or why is it we never talk about Jesus suffering God's wrath for us? Why don't we talk about that kind of substitution? 
And she said, I, I wish I could do accents. But she said with this very sweet British accent, she said, because people don't like to be confronted with their sin. I was like, wow, you said it. And I got really, it got quieter than this in the room. Let me read this quote to you. Gosh, without my right hand, I'm kind of... I came across, um, I don't know if any of you guys follow Tim Keller, but he, he quoted a Croatian a theologian recently, uh, Miroslav Volf. He's a, he, he lectures at, at Yale Seminary. Um, a phenomenal Christian theologian, he said this, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think I would have to rebel against a God that wasn't wrathful in spite, or wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. This resonates with me as a father. Not because I get like really mad at my kids, but because when I think about the world that we're raising them to live in and the evil that exists and the sins that will be committed against them and for sure the sins that they themselves will commit against others. It breaks my heart. It grieves me to the heart and it also makes me angry really, really angry. It makes me desperate for justice. It makes me long to know that there is a God in heaven that takes sin really, really seriously and that he's committed to actually executing justice wherever evil runs rampant, wherever people refuse to turn away from their wicked ways and embrace him and his ways. I need to know that I'm raising my kids in a world where God is still able and willing to deal with evil. That's love. That's love. What about the baptism? It's a similar kind of concept. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Resurrection. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It was only a few people, eight in all, who were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism. It says in Genesis chapter six that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, and he destroyed all of creation except for one family, who he spared. 
I know this is like really heavy and I'm not trying to be shocking, but this is the kind of thing that like you don't ever hear about in church anymore because it's just like, ugh, like this is, this is not happy thoughts. But this is what Jesus is talking about, the cup, the baptism. I'm about to go to Jerusalem to suffer for you. And this is why. Because the world is filled with evil. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's good news. While I was still stuck, caught up, living in rebellion, however you want to put it, God looked down and felt compassion. I mean, this is truly the heart of a father, a God who never, ever, ever gives up on his kids. To be sure, he will relent if we refuse to come to him. But he stands and looks longingly at the horizon, hoping that his lost son or daughter will come home. Not so that he can condemn them, but so that he can welcome them back into his loving arms. So that he can rescue them, heal them, clean them, celebrate that they're home. But he won't force us in. And there's this extreme sort of picture that's painted with these words. That our need is so much more dire than we can possibly fathom or perhaps want to even think about. I am that lost. I am in that much need of a savior. And our world doesn't need any more sons of thunder. It needs sons and daughters who know the unfathomable depths of how much they have been loved. Because while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. This is how God demonstrates his love. James and John, they were arrogant, self-absorbed, entitled to be sure, and without virtually any compassion towards people just like them and us. Jesus wasn't headed to Jerusalem to take down Rome. He was on a mission to rescue human hearts, to recreate us from the inside out. The Son of Man serves us by suffering and dying for us. What are the implications of that? I was uh, speaking with one of you before the service this morning, and we have a, a prayer team that meets handful of people who meet in the little room upstairs before the service every Sunday morning, which you're very welcome to participate in. And uh, they listen to God. They pray and they say, Father, what's on your heart this morning for your kids? And she said, I I had a, a sense, don't know if it's right, but I thought I'd share it with you. She said, I sense this like, like a hardness. Um, last week we talked about hardness of heart. 
And she said, it felt like, I don't know if it's you. And she asked me, do you have a hard heart? I said, I don't think I have a hard heart. Of course, if I did, I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, But no, I think I'm good. Um, But it got me thinking about how our hearts, the human heart, living in a fallen world, where, where people do like sin, like we sin against each other. Like I just watch it play out in my kids' lives every single moment of the day. It just, it's just so great. But living in a world where there's pain and sin and suffering, it, it, it can cause you to like put up your guard, especially when you get in like your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. How do you stay soft in a world that's broken and not quite right? We need to be reminded of how we have been loved. We need to be reminded consistently of what the gospel actually is, of who we were when Jesus died for us. It produces something. It breaks up the hardness in our hearts. Um, It produces, it produces a few things. Number one, it produces humility and it produces hope. Humility and hope. It produces humility because it, it does sort of back you into a corner. It's the offense of the cross that says, there's nothing I can do to save myself because even like my good works compared to God's holiness are like dirty rags. That's what the Bible says. There's nothing I can do to convince God that somehow like I'm good enough or I'm worth his time or his love. And it, it brings me low. It, it, it brings me really low, like almost depressingly low. Like I'm broken. I'm broken. It's, it's, it, I feel like it would be as if like I realized, man, I'm a, I'm a criminal in this world. I've hurt so many people. Oh, and I've justified it. My God, I have justified it. I've made my life so much about myself and it's so humbling. And I imagine it's like, it's like, it's like realizing I'm sitting on death row here. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a convicted criminal before a holy God and it brings you low. And then God comes along. The father comes and says, son, get up. No, 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 no. I I deserve to be sitting here. I deserve to feel bad about myself. I deserve to feel condemned. And the father says, no, get up. I want your seat. Get up. Do you not know who I am, how I love, what I've done for you? I'm telling you, arise. And God begins to lift us up. And not only does he get us off the bench, not only does he take, us play, uh, take our place, he welcomes us home. He doesn't just say, okay, you're forgiven. Now try not to do it again. He says, come home. I've suffered and died for you. Have hope. The world is new. Welcome home. 
Here's, a, here's clean clothes. Here's a new ring. You're back in the family. And by the way, let me put my spirit in your heart so that you don't have to live in bondage anymore. I want to make you into a new creation. I want to put, take that hard heart out and replace it with a heart that's soft that has my love engraved on it so that you can live differently, so that you can live in hope, humility and hope. That's good, that's good news. It also produces gratitude and generosity. Gratitude for obvious reasons. I have been rescued, I've been saved, my fine has been paid for like a gajillion billion dollars cleared. It creates a generosity in our hearts. When people are indebted to me, when people have sinned against me and something inside me feels like, no, but you gotta make it right. You owe me for that wrong. I can now be gracious towards people who sin against me. I can become more like Jesus and I can actually pray for people who are hurting me, who are judging me, who are trying to tear me down. I don't have to retaliate. I can do good to my enemy. I can love like my father. I can bless those who curse me. I can build up and not break down. And the way God's kingdom overcomes evil is by doing good, by laying our lives down like our king so that others might be lifted up so that others can experience the grace that we've been given. We're not only blessed, but we've been blessed to be a blessing to a broken world. And then finally, it produces, what did I say? Hope and humility, generosity and gratitude, compassion and courage, compassion and courage. We don't have to call down fire. It's not our place anyway. We're gonna call down fire. We might get just, we might get consumed along the way. God is the judge, and He sees the heart. He knows exactly what needs to be set right. The sons of thunder, the uh, gotta love them, calling down fire. If only they realized that fire was going to fall on their Savior for them fills your heart with compassion towards broken people. It makes forgiveness possible. I'm not talking about being forgiven. I'm talking about forgiving others. Because when you realize how much you have been forgiven, it's, it, it's very difficult not to love others. Encourage. Courage. Courage. to speak the truth, to tell the world about who God is, what he's done. The Bible says, don't fear man. Don't be afraid of he who can destroy the body. He says, what's the worst that could happen in this world? You could die. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. There's only one being in this universe that we should fear. And that is God, our holy creator, our loving father. Have courage. God wants 
to utilize our lives to make a difference in this world. That's a good desire. Have courage. Can I invite the band to come up, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.